Funding for the Capital Weekly Podcast is provided by the California Endowment and by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Yeah. I thought we were doing that. I thought it was nice experimental. It's like jazz riffs, you know, of uh, early podcast riffs. All right, John. All right, I like the John on. Oliver model. You know, he do, he likes basketball. He likes football. He just doesn't like the NCAA. He doesn't like the NFL. Oh, that's funny. You know, so there you go. he doesn't like organized soccer either. Right. <laughs> he doesn't. That's yeah, right. Yeah. There you go. Um, where was I? Oh, welcome uh, to Capital Weekly's uh, weekly podcast. Uh, this is John Howard. I'm with Tim Foster. Hello. And we're joined uh, by Paul Mitchell, the numbers cruncher, guru, vice president of Political Data Inc. I always say Political Data Inc. because everybody says PDI. Yeah. But then I saw it referred to standalone as political data. It just sounded funny. It's it goes back data. and forth. And we yeah. need a little bell that ding every time somebody calls me there a guru. You go. Just ding. <laughs> Maybe you can italicize <laughs> yeah, it. Or yeah. something. So, anyway, every time someone you. calls you a guru, an angel gets their wings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, and we like we were talking before the microphone went on, but we we're talking about what what's what's happening in 2018. What are you picking up? The 34th. Uh, congressional district you were talking about, Javier Becerra's successor. Yeah. Um, what's happening with that that you've seen? Other, other than that, there are 300 candidates down there, I think. Yeah, no, that, that race is really interesting. Uh, on the face of it, you've got 24 candidates, 23 on the ballot and one write-in that's qualified. Yeah. Um, so two dozen candidates. Um, one candidate that everybody in Sacramento knows, Jimmy Gomez. Um, a couple kind of candidates who are also probably considered top tier. Uh-huh. Um, and then just a flood of people coming in. And it's really interesting because, you know, uh, not living in the district and just kind of kind of learning about these candidates online and yeah. what you see on Twitter and stuff like that, there are actually some really good candidates in this race. I mean, some really competent, smart, um, you know, people who would be kind of attractive candidates for a lot of different races. But, uh, you know, got two dozen candidates going for it here. Yeah. Um, there are some really interesting dynamics. The first dynamic that's interesting is that out of the gate, everybody in that race was talking about this race as being, um, you know, the Hillary versus Bernie camps, the like, Mm -hmm. you know, populist Democrat versus the establishment Democrat. And uh, in that, guys, you had a bunch of people who were kind of laying claim to the Bernie support. In fact, Bernie was rumored or maybe is coming to the district to support one of the candidates, Hmm. you know, um, and... Uh, groups of candidates kind of banding together to try to uh, stop organizations from endorsing the quote-unquote establishment candidate, which is generally considered to be Jimmy Gomez. Did you have any sense of how it voted? Uh, well, the district voted barely for Bernie. Barely so it was for like 52-48 okay. for Bernie. Wow. Um, so everybody, like all the articles say, the district voted for Bernie, like as if it was a big win, but it was a very narrow win. Yeah. And in fact, when we... But in California, that's actually... Significant since since Clinton did so well here. Otherwise, it also is a district that Clinton won overwhelmingly when it was her versus Obama, and it's heavily Latino district. Interesting. It's interestingly the the most gay Latino seat in California. It is, uh, I believe, fourteenth most Latino and ninth most gay in terms of its population because it has this growing population of LGBT community like in Eagle Rock and portions of the kind of more gentrified. There's this interesting like hipster gentrification going on there. So you have this district, and the, out of the gate, it's this is Bernie versus Hillary, and like a rematch of the DNC race, right? But then slowly, as the race starts to develop, you start to see a couple other different things. First off, 
the partisan breakdown, just to be simple about it, you've got uh, 9% of the voters are, are Republican. Turnout, so far, 13% of the ballots that have been cast have been coming from Republicans. And there's one Republican in a race with 24 candidates. So if you treat this race like any normal race, when those Republicans silo themselves, they're not going to vote among the 23 Democrats or, or 20 Democrats, one yeah. Green, and other two Independents or whatever it is. They're going to vote for the Republican, almost lockstep for the Republican. So right. if you grant the Republican 12 percent, it's hard for me to think of a scenario where that's not going to be enough to make a runoff. Okay, So that's one interesting thing. So we go from it's a Bernie versus Hillary setup to it's maybe just a partisan setup. And then you get a couple more days into the race, you watch ballots coming in, and wow, Koreans. Koreans are 6% of the electorate in this race. And the first ballot returns we got, they were 32% of the ballots cast. Yeah, there was a lot of discussion about that on Twitter. Yeah, so first we saw the are Asian they heavily, Are they a Republican by No, 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 it doesn't do, but, but, but basically what it moves is, you know, on day one we think this is Bernie versus Hillary, proxy war. On day two, we realized, wait, maybe this is a Democrat versus Republican issue. The Republican is going to make the runoff and then the yeah. Democrat will win, like a normal situation in most districts. Or now day number three, we think, whoa, it's about L.A. ethnic pockets. Just in the same way that Caro Tarosian came in second in the L.A. Council District race in just right now uh, with the runoff in May. Uh, just in the same way that um, David Ryu won a race, kind of an upset victory for LA City Council a couple of years ago, where he was in a race with like six super well-funded, well-known well candidates and kind of popped through with his ethnic vote. This district could be coming down to LA's ethnic politics. Now, is there a Korean, a Korean-American Yeah, there voter? is a Robert Ahn okay. is a Korean-American who's uh, one of the candidates in this race. Uh, hearing anecdotally through reporters, not from any information we have on the political data side, but just you know reading articles and talking with folks, that there is an active campaign organized around him. You can go on Twitter and there's a bunch of tweets in Korean language mm -hmm. uh, regarding his campaign. And it seems as though this uh, is a possible third way. And we'll find out at the end of the day which one of those breakdowns of how to analyze the race really is the true one. If, Nope. If we, you know, if it comes down in the end of the election to the top Bernie candidate versus the top establishment candidate making the runoff, then you know you can attribute that first analysis. If it comes to a Republican and the top Democrat, then there you go. And if it comes into you know two Democrats, one of them being this this Korean American candidate who probably wasn't on any of everybody's radar as being in the top six or eight candidates in that race to begin with, now is seen as, I mean, just for scale. Uh, last time I looked, I think it was 2,800 ballots had come in from uh, Korean Americans, and 48% of them hadn't voted in the LA City races that were wow. just a couple weeks ago. Wow. So this is like, this is organizing grassroots yeah. turnout, and it's emblematic of LA's ethnic politics that especially Maybe in these low Maybe who ran like, Patty Lopez's campaign? Are they Patty, working no, here? No, no, Patty Lopez is one. We got a whole article on that. Yeah. Patty Lopez won uh, no, I, by mistake. So hey, well, this, would be a role, this would be active organizing yeah. that we can see real real data to show that something's happening. So it's now, really interesting. This was, if I remember, wasn't John A. Perez going to run in this? Then he yeah. pulled, pulled John, the last John minute? John Perez was going to run for this. He was also uh, possibly right before that going to run for DNC chair um, and then pulled out with health issues. Yeah. Um, do you have any sense what he have done? Do you have any just guess? Would he have done well here? Well, it depends. If uh, if him getting in would have maybe put 
uh, Jimmy Gomez in a position of having to rethink running. Um, he and Jimmy Gomez would have been two, you know, primary establishment candidates. Yeah. It might have shaken up the field a little bit. Um, you know, if you get more than two dozen candidates on the same ballot. What percentage uh, do you need to win? I know. Well, yeah, I mean, the percentage, the threshold goes down and down, but I wonder about the voter fatigue you've had with ballot props or something. You see all these names. But, I mean, people say, oh, God, I'm not going to get to the bottom of it. Well, it's only one ballot, one question, and it kind of fits yeah. in on one page, so it's not that bad of an issue. Um, but uh, I think the bigger issue is, first off, they just had the LA City Council races. Uh -huh. um, the ballots for this race were mailed out... I believe, uh, you know, a couple of days before the L.A. City Council race or a couple of days after right in that same window. So a lot of people yeah. got this ballot and they're like, Shh, I just voted. What are you talking about? I'm Why tired. am I getting this again? And, you know, it has nothing, you know, they thought it was a mistake. They thought they were getting a well, mistake. Special elections in that mm -hmm. area are pretty, pretty really, rare. really low turnout. Too. Super low turnout. Yeah. yeah, traditionally very low turnout. That's the other question. There's the Audi box scenario, although that was in, that was in that Northern was California, California. But, yeah. yeah. Um, the other issue is... Uh, when we looked at the LA City Council races, and we look at this race, we're looking at traditionally very, very low turnout races. Um, and there was this open question going into the LA City Council races and, and this, open, this open congressional seat uh, special. Are we going to be able to see any signs in these races of heightened turnout because of the heightened political engagement that we have in California right now with national issues. So it would follow, right? I mean, it would make sense. Like for, for a normal layperson, kind of gut check, mm -hmm. if more people are watching Sean Spicer press conferences than watching Days of Our Lives, and they have an opportunity to vote. Is Days of Our Lives anything, even still on? I don't know. But I mean, there is, whatever soap operas are still on, Sean Spicer's press conferences is apparently getting higher ratings. <laughs> yeah, you know, maybe it was uh, that is hospital. That General is hospital, its yeah. own soap opera, to yeah. be honest. Yeah, it Dark is. Shadows. <laughs> but I mean, I I probably watched two press conferences in the whole two Obama administrations, yeah. and I've watched probably ten Sean Spicer press conferences. And, and how many uh, Saturday Night Live you know, yes, parodies of? So you of have essentially like, uh, just to put it into the sports metaphor, if everybody was running around town wearing Oregon Duck jerseys and and having, you know, talking about Duke and talking about college basketball, you would think that ticket sales would go up for college basketball, that there's a linear relationship between engagement and watching the, you know, what's happening in, in a particular sport, and then sales for those, for that sport in ticket sales. Yeah. The question is, is there a linear relationship to that in our elections? Is the heightened engagement by people, you know, hashtag resist, going to LAX to protest, either supporting Trump or being against Trump, is that heightened elevation of the dialogue and the, the fact that it's kind of seeped into everything we do and since Trump got elected, is that going to convert to higher numbers of people voting? And the preliminary answer from L.A. is ostensibly no, that voters didn't draw a connection. They didn't connect the dots between being angry about a national event, being angry about Trump, and being on Twitter or being on social media or fighting with their uncle at Christmas time. They didn't make the dot, connect the dots to dot, 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 dot. Here's my ballot, here's my stamp, I'm going to mail and I'm going to vote in the LA City Council election. Even though a lot of the candidates for LA City Council utilize like, you know, a vote for this is a vote for Trump kind of messaging on their mailers. And a lot of these congressional candidates, almost all these congressional candidates in some way are saying vote for me because I can stand up to Trump. And these 
are the only races we're going to have between now and 2018 primary. So if you're a political consultant and you're on the fence and you don't know if 2018 is going to be a, you know, ho-hum, low turnout like the 2014 primary or like any normal gubernatorial primary right around 36% turnout or something, if you don't know whether it's going to be that ho-hum or you're on the fence, you might think maybe it'll be 50% turnout because people are so engaged and angry about what's happening nationally. Well, if you're on that fence, the data that came in from LA City suggests lower turnout in the 18 primary. And we have to watch what happens in this congressional race. And if this congressional race is really low turnout and those messages anti-Trump don't really engage people, then you start to lose data points that suggest higher turnout in the 18 primary and potentially the 18 general if those campaigns and the election itself doesn't draw a connection for voters between you know, what's happening nationally with Trump and their vote. How about um, just moving a little bit further south to the uh, 29th? Congressional District with ISA, uh -huh. narrowly won last few days. This probably happened over 49, weeks and months, yeah. but yeah. Oh, 49, excuse 49, me. Yeah. Um, but he seems to be repositioning himself philosophically, ideologically. He seems to be going to the center and even maybe a little to the left of center. This is Daryl ISA. Is this a district yeah. thing in the, you know, is it? That, isn't that one of the signs of the apocalypse, Daryl Issa going to the left to center? <laughs> well, you know, no matter what you think about Daryl Issa, love yeah. him or hate him, yeah. I think there's very few people that don't feel as though, or that feel as though he's not a smart tactician, that he's yeah. not smart politically, that he's not, he can't read the tea leaves. And he had two close races in 2016. Obviously the primary was, you know, he was going to make the runoff, but, uh, you know, the Doug Applegate performed a lot better um, as a relatively unknown candidate uh, against him in the primary and in the general election. Again, that was a very close race for him. Um, and this is a district that is shifting more and more Democratic and the independents that are registering are more and more progressive. But I think that it's on a shift where, like, in 10 years, ISIS should be worried on the natural. Uh -huh. The changes in the national conversation, the... Um, you know, what we've seen with Trump, what we saw in this last election, maybe has sped this up. It's accelerated the timeline of this congressional seat and other congressional seats in Orange County being competitive. Yeah. ISA, smart and quick to respond to it. Um, he did support the uh, Ob he did support Trump on this Obamacare repeal, mm -hmm. yeah. which as of our taping, you know, that has been, that vote has been canceled. Um... However, he very adeptly found one issue where he could take a stance against Trump, mm -hmm. but also message to his Republican base like, hey, I'm being consistent. And that was on the issue of a special prosecutor. He essentially said, we need to have an independent prosecutor. We need to have an independent investigation of Trump. Just because, and just like I called for independent investigations of what was happening in the Obama era, just like I have always stated, I've always, so essentially he's able to, through this consistency, message to Republicans and others like, hey, I'm being consistent, I stand up for good government, I stand up for... Uh, How about redistricting? Here. Three years we'll probably have that. Do you see his district? Well, redistricting is a very interesting issue. Um, I've started to look at for an article for Capital Weekly in the next few weeks. God bless um, you, my son. Yeah. Thank you. For um, I've started to look at an article where uh, we're taking the mid-year census data and the population growth and uh, relative shrinkage around the state to uh, do some analysis of congressional districts and where they oh, might yeah. change. Cool. Um, I think his is in an area where you might see shifting. Uh, and so, yeah, after 2020, in the 2022 election, he would be under new lines. 
And, you know, depending on how those broke, he could be in a more competitive race. And I do think that, you know, by 2022 or 2026 or 2028, that whole area is going to be uh, continuing this transformation where you're getting a lot more Latinos registering to vote, a lot more uh, voters who are independent, and in the coastal area, independent means more progressive, and where that whole swath of the state becomes much more competitive over time. Um, and uh, so the redistricting might be a shortcut to making that seat more competitive for mm -hmm. Democrats, uh, but the underlying demographics are doing it, you know, on kind of a decade-long process already. When you've got lots of uh, candidates uh, in a special or in a regular election, how does the fundraising play out? I mean, it seems like you've, you've got a limited, a finite amount of money in fundraising, at least for, like, mainstream Democrats in the gubernatorial election coming up. How do you, how, how do they survive with less money? I assume they all can't get equal amounts of dollars from these from big donors, so they have to get by with less. Does that make it easier for you know maybe a Republican candidate, uh, you know, Ashley Schweringen or somebody? Does that make it easier for them to get in? So shifting to the eighteen general the, for the eighteen gubernatorial election, um, yeah, I mean there is this issue with uh, multiple Democratic candidates trying to get money from several different uh, pots. Um, a couple things come into play. One is, uh, you know, overall political spending has been going up and up and up and up and up. And uh, so I think that you'll see these candidates end up being well-funded by this growing economy around political spending. Secondly, as we've discussed before, um, as opposed to having a dozen open assembly races next year or 16 or 20 you know, open assembly races next year because of term limits, there's going to be one open assembly race. Which one is it? Ana Caballero's seat. She ran for election in 2016 for one term in order to put herself into a position to run for the state senate uh, in 2018. Um, so there will be absolutely one open seat. And so all these organizations, the charter schools, unions, business groups, you know, uh, the medical association, you know, different, all the groups yeah. that traditionally spend money in a lot of these legislative races are not going to have that as being a primary thing. And so I think that'll even free up more money for, mm -hmm. um, you know, the governor's race to become a bunch of proxy wars. Is that true in both houses? That one in both houses? In the no, Senate? the Senate, the, the state Senate has a more normal kind of... Uh, yes, it's yeah. more staggered out, six yeah. or eight open state Senate seats yeah. okay. you know, every year. Um, but, you know, the articles that we've done recently looking at 2018 turnout, um, looking at the, the diversity of the ballot that uh -huh. we have, which is just shocking to me. I was at a coffee shop today and ran into a lobbyist and basically walked him through how of the eight statewide races uh, for constitutional officers, five of them have top-tier Latino candidates. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, and then beyond that, of the three remaining offices, two of those have top-tier Asian candidates. And this provides two th opportunities. One is an opportunity for those minority groups to really spike turnout and engagement in these races and excitement about these mm -hmm. races. But on the flip side, remember, 68% of the voters who turn on Election Day are going to be white. Yeah. And for them, uh, there might be a little bit of a, you know reaction. Mm -hmm, and sure. we've seen in Orange County, um, parts of LA, uh, when ethnic groups do kind of finally reach, achieve this period, this, this growth and this political strength where uh, they can kind of saturate a ballot like we're going to have in the gubernatorial election uh, with all the down ballot races. 
um, the voters who are, you know, kind of surprised of this growth uh, can sometimes negatively react. So that's going to be an interesting thing to watch. Great. Well, we will definitely watch it. Uh, Tim Foster, thank you very much. Thank you. Paul Mitchell, again, thank you very much. You're sort of a regular on the show. Thank you very much. Happy thank to you come very back much. Thanks for your time. And we'll see this John Howard with Capital Weekly. We'll see you next time around. Bye. See ya. The Capital Weekly podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations.